What's up, Badger fam? Welcome to the show where every single week I interview the smartest minds in crypto. I'm your host, Miles, and today we're talking to Avachar, the founder of Electric Capital. Avachar, welcome to the show. How are you today? Good to see you. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> been looking forward to this one for a while, actually, and we've got a lot to discuss today. I want to talk about the current state of the market, the future of Bitcoin and ETH, your favorite projects for next cycle, your investment strategy, and a lot more. So I think before we get into all of that, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who is Avachar? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm, I'm the co-founder of Electric Capital. Uh, we're one of the larger uh, global uh, crypto VC firms. Um, you know, we manage, depending on what you think crypto is worth, we manage somewhere between zero and $2 billion. Um, you know, we're, we're venture capitalists. So we, we do these closed end funds. We're not traders. We don't move in and out of positions quickly. And kind of our, our lens on this is uh, that we think this is a, a technological transformation that's going to take 20 to 30 years to play out uh, much like the internet did and uh, Curtis who's my co-founder um, he and I you know spent most of our careers as entrepreneurs so we started and sold a few companies um, I spent some time at Google we sold our second company to Facebook so I've worked at the big internet companies as well and we think that this is going to be at least as big in terms of transformation in the world um, so we take a really long-term view on these things and so um, you know we, we, we tend to invest really early so seed in series a it's like two people in an idea or um, you know, the small team has formed around the idea, but they haven't really shipped it yet. Um, and given our backgrounds, that, that's where we can add the most value to. So getting in there and helping people think about how to build the thing, how to hire, how to build an organization, how to ship it, how to acquire customers, like how, how to scale the thing. Those are all things that we've done that we can help with. Um, and we've been doing this now for um, a little over four years um, full time with uh, with Electric. And before that, we were angel investors. So we were fortunate to be investors in a number of companies that have gone on to do very well, both inside and outside of crypto. So, um, you know, CryptoKitties and DYDX and uh, OpenSea and Anchorage, a bunch of good crypto stuff, but also companies like Notion, Figma, Airtable, um, Deal, thing, things like outside of crypto that have gone on to do well, which I think gives us really good perspective because, you know, at the end of the day, technology is technology. So being able to see these cycles and understand kind of what's happening broadly in technology is you know, crypto, crypto is just one part of tech. So it's good to have that broader perspective, I think. So take us back a few years. What exactly led you to this point today? Um, and your kind of first initial <clears throat> encounter with the crypto market? Yeah, well, so there's, there's two halves to that, right? So there's the um, exposure to the crypto market. And then there's the like, how did we end up starting a VC firm? So on the crypto market side, when we were doing our previous startup, the one that we sold to Facebook, um, what, what we built, like the IP, the technology that we built was how do you, um, run a lot of GPUs and a lot of different data centers all over the world. And we were doing a bunch of video encoding with that. And there's a bunch of hard technology around that. And, uh, in these data centers, we ran into some Bitcoin miners. This was like 2010. And, um, and so we were like, what the hell are these guys doing? And Curtis comes from a distributed systems background. And so, um, when we saw Bitcoin, we actually, we, we misunderstood it. We thought it was a way to pay for computational power on, an, on a distributed system, um, which it's clearly not, right? And, um, and so, um, you know, we mined some Bitcoin, we ended up selling it because we were like, this thing actually is pretty terrible for writing code. And, and you know, it's just not, that's not what it's designed to do. Um, and so we sold the company and we, we kind of had a little bit of um, scar tissue. This happens with a lot of founders is like, once you do a company, you you just, it's, it's like a really bad relationship. You go through the breakup and you're like, man, I never want to do that again. Um, <laughs> and, and so like, you know, we, we built this, all this technology to control all these GPUs and all these, all these data centers. And we we're like, man, how great would it be if you could just write some code and ship it and you didn't have to think about infrastructure at all. And today we would call that serverless. And so that's why we thought 
you know, when we were looking at Bitcoin, we sort of misunderstood it. And then when we saw Ethereum um, in 2015, we were like, oh, this is actually the thing that we thought Bitcoin was, um, which then forced a bunch of questions because we were like, well, Bitcoin hasn't died and it is not good at this. So like, what is Bitcoin? And Bitcoin's a totally different thing, right? It's perspective, store value, digital gold, like that whole thing that, that people kind of now understand. And so we had to go up this learning curve of trying to understand economics and finance and monetary policy and macro and interest rates and all, like, all this stuff that we've never taken any classes on because we're both engineers. And so, you know, we, we got up to speed on all that stuff, which helped us understand Bitcoin, which then actually fed back into Ethereum and helped us understand Ethereum and DeFi and kind of what, you know, our, our sort of thesis on the world, um, we called programmable money. And the idea that now computers could custody money and you could write code around money. And that that's what's so transformative about this stuff. Um, so our, our journey to it actually is, is kind of in many ways backwards from most people. Most people sort of understand Bitcoin and they get their head around it. And then you sort of get your head around programmable, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And, um, and then you're like, oh, but this could be used for all this other stuff too. <clears throat> and we kind of went the opposite direction. We sort of started with like, wouldn't it be great if you could just ship code? And we had to go backwards to understanding money. Um, and so we kind of came at it in a totally backwards way in terms of how electric was started. You know, we were, we sort of joked that we were accidental VCs like Curtis and I, um, we thought we would start another company and that company ended up happening to be a VC firm. And the way that happened was we were doing a bunch of this personal angel investing and we were, um, doing some stuff with tokens back in 2017. And we started getting all these inbounds from other VC firms, people that we'd worked with over the years, um, here in Silicon Valley. And they essentially were saying, you know, you guys really understand this stuff. And I remember you were into Bitcoin years ago. Uh, could you come talk to our our team about, you know, what's an ICO? What's Ethereum? Um, you know, what, uh, you know, what are these tokens? How should we think about them? And this is, you know, if you remember 2017, you know, we were kind of going crazy town um, in the early days. So um, we ended up uh, having a bunch of those conversations. And, and at the end of those conversations, kind of roughly at the end of 2017, most of the VC firms in Silicon Valley said, we're not set up to do this stuff at all. Like crypto is a totally different thing, not really in our wheelhouse. Uh, and so a few of those people came to us and approached us and said, can we just give you and Curtis money? You, we trust you guys. We know if, you give, if, if we give you money, you're not going to run away to Costa Rica and become John McAfee and like live that John McAfee life. And so we trust you guys. Can we give you money to do whatever the hell it is that you're doing with your own, own money, but do it with our money too? Uh, and so that's how Electric was started in 2018. We sort of looked at it and we said, you know, it's, it's kind of one of the lessons you learn as an entrepreneur is if, if people show up and they're just like banging on your door and they're like, please take my money, you might be onto something and you should take that pretty seriously. Uh, and so we kind of were like, well, maybe this is this is like a product. Maybe this is a business. Um, and what would that look like? And, and that sort of took us down this rabbit hole of, of coming to believe that if you believe that this stuff is programmable money, then our belief is that the 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 financial firms, the investment firms, the people that that deploy money for a living also have to think about their business very differently. And so what we do that's that's different and I think has served us well is our belief as well, if this stuff is all programmable, then the people who work at the financial firms, the people who work at the venture capital firms need to be engineers because you really have to understand the technology here to be able mm -hmm. to deploy capital effectively. Like if you can't understand um, you know, the technical details of what you're investing in, you're probably going to make a bunch of bad decisions. Um, and so we've taken this sort of philosophical approach, which bleeds into you know how we do marketing, you know, we write the developer report based on a bunch of proprietary data that we that we crawl from the internet. Um, or, you know, we, um, we built our own accounting systems, because a lot of the stuff that we do on chain, there's no third party tooling to do. And so a lot of what we what we do in sort of running the business comes from 
running it like a software company more so than a venture firm. Um, and that, that's all sort of, that's all, all sort of like based on this belief that if all of this stuff is software eating money, then like the way that you need to run your business is much more like a software business. Um, and all, the, all the venture stuff will move on chain over the next 10 years, um, versus like running it like a traditional VC firm. So anyway, that was a long answer to your, your question, but you know, we, um, mostly are entrepreneurs, electric capital today is we're about 25 people, a couple of billion dollars, but we're mostly engineers. Everybody on the investment team is a, is a former engineer, former product person. Um, and so we're, our DNA is a little bit different in terms of how we approach this stuff. No, it's a good answer. It's a good insight. So today, um, obviously, as founder, managing partner at Electric Capital, what's kind of your investment strategy? What kind of projects do you look at? What's your thesis? Yeah, I mean, the, the core of it still is this idea that if you look at what this stuff is truly transformative at, it's it's moving money peer to peer. That's the crux of it. Now, that takes a lot of forms and it has a lot of different downstream consequences. Um but we think every part of the money stack, like from base store value to um, payments to banking to um, derivatives and options to securities, like the marketplaces and exchanges on top of that, all of that lending markets, all of that stuff will get reinvented here and it will get reinvented in, in an Internet native way. Um, and, you know, there's there's um, I can't take credit for this. This is uh, somebody else's analogy, but it's sort of, you know, the Internet was sort of took these local communication networks that we had and created a network of networks. And so now you could talk to anybody in the world. And by creating that global network, um, you unlocked and, and had to have new tools to take advantage of that global network. And I think what we've now done is we've created a, a global money network where you can move money around very, very quickly and efficiently and write code around it. And so we just think every part of that money stack gets reinvented. And as we're doing that, all of a sudden it spills over into other stuff. So things like marketplaces. So like we're investors in a company called Magic Eden which is the largest NFT marketplace on Solana and is, is um, you know, growing quickly and in, in other ecosystems like Polygon and Ethereum now too. Um, but you look at that and you're like, well, is that programmable money? And, and actually it is because an NFT is a, is a form of a digital property that comes out of this. And the reason I think so many creators are excited about the idea of NFTs or collectibles or digital art is there's now a peer to peer relationship between the creator and their fan. And there's this great article by Kevin Kelly from the, the creator of Wired magazine, like 15, 20 years ago, where he talked about how the internet will let you find your thousand true fans. Like for every creator, there's a thousand out of the 8 billion people in the world. There's a thousand people that love your art. You just have to find them. But it turns out he was only half right, right? Like not only do you have to find them, but they have to be able to pay you. And if they can't pay you easily, then, then you can't actually sustain yourself from your fans. And now we've, we've like solved the other half of that. And so now the internet lets you find your thousand true fans and crypto lets those, those people actually pay you. And you kind of run the numbers and you're like, well, would a thousand people in the world pay you 50 bucks a year for your art or a hundred dollars a year for your art? That doesn't seem crazy to me. And that's 50 to a hundred thousand dollars a year, which is probably more money than any musician or like illustrator or artist would have made otherwise right that's that's like a transformative amount of money for most people like the the term starving artist exists for a reason right and and mm -hmm. like this actually allows money to flow peer-to-peer -peer in a way between creators and fans that it just couldn't before um and so you start looking at marketplaces and you're like oh like money flows are at the core of a lot of marketplaces um and commerce um uh, or you look at dev tools right if it turns out there are going to be trillions of dollars of money moving around which there already are if you look at like usd stable coin volume um you know there's trillions of dollars of flow 
Well, you need different ways to write code around that. So there's going to be an entirely new developer ecosystem, tools like Sertora or ImmuneFi for bug bounties that um, we'll need to be able to write code here. And so then you get an entire developer ecosystem that springs up around it. So anyway, this like the, the, the idea of programmable money in and of itself is a huge concept, I think. But the, the side effect of it and like the, the ecosystem that spins up around it is also going to be enormous. Um, and so we focus a lot today on things like L1s, L2s, the infrastructure layer, DeFi protocols. Um, but there's increasing opportunity around things like NFTs, marketplaces, developer tools, fintech companies that are built on top of this stuff that just happen to use crypto rails on the back end. Like all of that, zero knowledge tech, like we're, we're probably one of the world's largest investors in, Z in CK protocols of all sorts um, and teams. Um, that's an amazing spillover effect of crypto that has applications to money and, and other, other areas. Um, so, you know, uh, kind of our, our aperture over time is, is getting bigger, but today probably most of our money is going towards like L1s, L2s, infrastructure, DeFi protocols, um, you know, NF NFT kind of um, marketplaces like that. That's kind of where we spend a lot of time right now. <clears throat> nice. And I definitely want to ask you today also about, yeah, the L1 market. Um, you, your views on Ethereum, what kind of narratives you're looking at. But before we kind of get into all that stuff, I wanted to kind of um, get your opinion on on 2022. Obviously, it was, it was a really tough year. We had a lot go down with FTX in November. Um, coming out of 2022, upon reflection, like what were your biggest lessons and what's your outlook now going forward, knowing what we know now? Yeah, so I think there's a... Um, I think when we look back, I'm, I'm personally going to remember probably two or three things. Um, one, I think, is I walked out of 2022 generally pretty optimistic. And the reason is, you know, I think if you go back to 2017, which was sort of, you know, go, go to like December 2017 um, or, uh, you know, so roughly like the, the uh, peak of the last cycle. Um, and you look at it like, five years later and all of the stuff that was theoretical in 2017 is actually real now, right? Like Ethereum was one day going to move to proof of stake. It was going to have layer twos for scalability. Uh, there would be stable coins. So we could do stuff with dollars. Um, uh, you know, we would have NFTs, we would have marketplaces. Uh, we would have DeFi protocols that let you swap, you know, tokens and, and be decentralized. We, like we had all these ideas in 2017, and they're actually all real now. Instead of being vaporware, they actually all exist, um, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and so my biggest thing, I think when we look back on 2022, I think we're going to say like, that was the year that all of the stuff that was supposed to happen in 2020 actually happened. Um, and so it's, it's in many ways that if you know that adage of people way overestimate what can be done in two years, and they really underestimate what can be done in 10 years. I think that crypto markets, the price in crypto markets is, is a like perfect encapsulation of that. If you like, if you put a, if you put a number to that, I think you would basically get the, the like crypto price curve, which is like, it goes crazy for two years and then overcorrects for two years and then it goes crazy again. And then you like look back and you're like, well, but actually in 2015, when Ethereum came out, we've like done a lot of the stuff that was in the white paper. Like it was supposed, and it's seven years later. So you play this out. And like by 2025, like I think we'll actually have done the stuff in the white paper, which is like pretty remarkable actually to have created an entirely new financial ecosystem worth potentially trillions of dollars um, in under 10 years. But like, you know, if you go back to, to 2017 ICO boom, people thought it would happen in two years. Um, yeah. And so to me, it was actually like very... Um, reaffirming like the the technologists and the engineers just put their heads down and kept building and they actually shipped all of the stuff that was vaporware in 2017 it's like all real the other thing that actually 
I think it was brutal to go through with FTX. But I do think in the long term, what I hope at least, I don't know if think, what I hope happens is that people realize that this is why DeFi exists, right? If you go back to the original white paper, what Satoshi wrote down was, look, the system is busted. Like if you have a system where one out of a thousand people can just steal your money, they can be Bernie Madoff or they can, you know, like take so much leverage um, that they bring the whole system down. Even if 999 out of a thousand people are good, that one person will totally screw you and they'll screw the system and they'll screw everybody. And so we need to design a system that doesn't rely on a, a thousand out of a thousand people being good. We have to assume that one out of a thousand people is not good at the very least. Um, but that was a 2008 lesson. And that was like a 2001 lesson. And if you kind of run the numbers on it, like um, by the demographics of it, uh, most people in the market today don't know that lesson. Like they kind of know it as a lesson of history, but like, just, just, just pick a number, right? You're the, if you're the oldest millennial, you're probably about 40 right now. That's like the top end of millennials. So you work backwards and you're like, okay, that like 15 years ago was 2008. So you'd be like 25 when 2008 happened and you would be like 16 or something when the internet bubble was happening. You're just like two. And that's like the oldest one. So like, if you're younger than that, you weren't even in the workforce when 2008 happened. Right. And, and you were like in elementary school. Like I was in middle school when the internet bubble was happening, right? Like elementary and middle school. Um, so you have like no concept of 2001 or 2008, like em emotionally, viscerally, like I, as, as somebody who did not live through his experiences as an adult, don't have a concept of that. Um, and anybody younger than me certainly doesn't either. Um, and that's most of the crypto market. So like, I think what just happened in 2022 is this intellectual lesson that everybody in crypto knows. Everybody just learned emotionally and viscerally, which is, yes, we cannot trust some guy to keep our money because he'll probably steal it. Um, but what's different today versus 2008 and 2009 is we actually have the technology to solve this problem. Like the tools now exist for us to build a system that does not rely on everybody being good and can assume that one out of a thousand people are bad, but they can't steal our money. Um, and so that actually, I think is a little bit of a silver lining here is like now that everybody has actually viscerally learned this lesson, um, I think there will actually be a response here to say, I don't want to live through that ever again as somebody who's lived through the crypto experience and that guy stole all my money. We were very fortunate, by the way, at Electric to not have any exposure there. And so, you know, we, we avoided the, the sort of um, all the, the negative consequences there. I think we had, it, it, was leaked, it was leaked to the press. Normally we don't talk about internals, but it was leaked to the press. We had um, eight Bitcoin sitting on the exchange. That was our entirety of our, like out of our, you know, last billion dollar fund. Like, you know, we had $100,000 or something sitting on FTX. So we were very fortunate to avoid that. Um, but I think for the broader market, a lot of people just learned a really important lesson. And I think what it's going to do in the same way that for people who lived through 2001, 2008, and they saw Bitcoin and they're like, I get it. I think there's now an entire generation of people between the ages of like 10 and 40 that just said like, I get it. And I think that's a tremendous catalyst. I think that that sets the stage for this stuff to actually work and go mainstream because we now have the technology to actually solve these problems in the way that they should have been solved in the first place. So is the grass greener on the other side? Are you, um, do you have a positive outlook for 2023? Yeah, very much so. But, you know, we, we it, it goes back to kind of, um, we've talked about this, you know, it's, it's um, we're not short-term traders. Like, I don't know what happens in five days. Um, and by the way, nobody, this is not financial advice. Nobody should listen to me about anything. As, as an aside to the aside, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think it's one of the funnier things to me is that people listen to VCs at all 
Because if you think about the venture capital business model, like we have to assume that most of the stuff that we invest in goes to zero and that one or two of the things that we invest in will be worth a lot more. They'll be worth a hundred or a thousand X what they're worth. Um, but that's like a very bizarre portfolio construction. Like the people who give us money are signing up for that kind of a portfolio construction. That's what they want. And it makes sense in certain contexts, especially if you have a lot of money, it makes a, a lot of sense for the average person. That is a terrible portfolio construction. Like you should not construct your portfolio that way at all. It's like, you know, go talk to any financial advisor and they're not going to tell you to do that. Right. Um, and so it's kind of bizarre to me that people, people listen to people like me who like my job is to find things that most of the time are going to fail. <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of like, yeah. weird. That, but with that backdrop, we take like a five to 10 year time horizon on these, right? Like we're not trading in and out of things very quickly. And the question we're really trying to answer is like, what's happening on the ground fundamentally, which is why we do things like the developer report, because mm -hmm. if there's, you know, a thousand developers in an ecosystem writing code or like 8,000 developers like Ethereum, um, and that number just keeps going up year after year after year, you have to look at that and say, man, like, I don't know what happens in the short term on prices, but like 8,000 engineers a month writing code and open source code, which doesn't count any of the closed source development that's happening and likely undercounts a lot of the development that's happening. Like something's going on there. Um, and then there's a whole set of questions around what is that worth and how do you price it in the short term and the long term, yada, yada. Um, but to me, that's like, that's like smoke. And that's where we, we go poking around. Um, so like with, when I look at the numbers from 2022 with that developer report or compare them to 2021 or compare them to 2020, it's just so clear what the trends are. It's just like more and more developers coming in, more and more people writing code, the ecosystem is getting more and more diverse, more and more non Ethereum things are starting to become robust ecosystems like Solana and near and, um, you know, uh, cosmos ecosystem. Like there's you know thousands. To, you know who had a problem with the developer report? Charles. Oh, is it? <laughs> oh, yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> the Canano community didn't like the report. <laughs> oh man, you know, I, I, I really don't. I fully admit this. I really don't understand the Cardano community, but I love how passionate they are. Like, I have to give them props. Like, if every community were as passionate as the, as the Cardano community, like any founder or any ecosystem would kill to have the energy that the Cardano community has around. Like, oh, they're just, yeah. I love it. Um, I don't understand it, um, but I love it. And you know what we did is I, I do think like, I, you know, I, I was on um, Twitter talking to some folks in that community. And one thing I, I will, I'm like, we're very transparent about is like, you know, as investors, if I'm, if I'm on the wrong side of an investment, like, you know, if, if, if I put money into a thing that's not working or I'm not putting in money and the thing is really working, I really, really need to know. Like that, that is an existential thing to my business. Um, and so if it turns out, uh, out that we're just really wrong about what's happening with Cardano, by the way, Cardano community represents really well in the developer report, just to be clear, like we, yeah. we track, you know, hundreds and, and thousands of developers writing code in that ecosystem. I think they just want it to be more, which I love. I love, I love the ambition of it. They're like, no, you're still undercounting us. I love it. Um, but, uh, but, you know, if we're, if we're incorrect somehow, I want to know. And so, you know, the, the Cardano community is more than welcome to go contribute to the, to the GitHub. Anybody can go do a pull request and add repositories and we'll, we'll suck them in and start crawling and adding up those developers. Um, and, and that goes for any community, any, anybody that wants to contribute, it's an open source taxonomy. Anybody can contribute to it. And, you know, at this point we have something like 250 or 300 people who contribute to it every year um, in terms of the report. So it, it, it's actually really become a community effort, like all of the foundations and um, a bunch, a bunch of like, um, uh, uh, like data providers, you know, like people get in there and, and actually spend spend time helping us find all these projects. It's, it's pretty awesome because it's it's such a good shared resource for everybody. Like we're we're pretty aggressive about 
people not taking the data and trying to monetize it, for example, like it's against the terms of service to do that. Um, and we don't monetize it because we just think like it's really good for everybody to have a shared resource of where is there real stuff happening? Like where are there real engineers writing real code? Um, and how do we track that? Because that's just good for everybody. That's like a, you know, we're all pulling in the same direction at the end of the day of trying to make this stuff real. Um, and so understanding that is, is like a shared good. Um, so anybody can go contribute to it. So Cardano community, Ripple community, you know, every, everybody that wants to like get in there and say, hey, look, I think you're undercounting my community. Please get in there and, and contribute. Go to the go to the before I, before I ask you a bit more about your findings from the developer report, what do you think of Cardano as I mean, maybe more from a technological perspective? Oh, their approach to very, I guess, slow, um, slow yeah. shipping of code. <clears throat> yeah. So I think purely from a technology perspective, I mean, you look at things like Ouroboros and they had, they, I mean, like to, to their credit, I think they, they've advanced um, the state of the art. If you go back three, four or five years, um, they've done a lot of stuff very thoughtfully. Um, so, you know, props to them for, for pushing the boundaries on that front. Um, I think from like a go-to-market perspective, I think there's, they're just too slow. And, and the reality is that even if you think that that's the best tech, which it may or may not be the case, you know, don't, don't listen to me on that. Make your own call if you think the tech is better. The reality is a lot of times the best tech doesn't win. I mean, even if you look at Ethereum, everybody would acknowledge it was, you know, V1 is busted. Solidity is a goofy programming language. Like there's weird ways to make, you know, memory mistakes because of the way variable scoping works or the EVM is like kludgy in all sorts of ways. But like JavaScript is terrible too, right? And here we are, like the internet runs on JavaScript, mm -hmm. right? And, and so like the reality of how these things actually win, like the best product doesn't win despite what technologists may want. You have to like go to market in the right way and acquire customers and build network effects and build community. Um, and, and the reality is that when you look at the Ethereum ecosystem or you look at Solana or you look at Nier, or you look at Polkadot, you look at Cosmos, like they're just acquiring developers and those developers are writing code and shipping faster um, and getting more apps built. And, and that's a real network effect. And so, you know, I think, um, I, I guess my, my thought would be if the Cardano community really wants to, to compete I think the place to turn the dial is probably not like, hey, let's really dig in and say we should be slow and thoughtful and like, you know, how we launch this stuff. I think, I think like that's a losing battle at this stage that may have worked five years ago when it was only Ethereum and that's not the world anymore. And so like, if you're not very aggressive about getting to market and acquiring developers, like look at, look at how Aptos and Sui are doing with Move and like how they're leaning into those ecosystems and, and you look at the growth of those ecosystems. I'm not even talking about price, right? I'm just talking how quickly they're acquiring high quality developers to write code in their ecosystem. They're being very aggressive about it and they're being very aggressive about shipping quickly. Um, and I think that's the right strategy. I think like getting stuff out the door and letting people use it and letting other people build on top of it, it, it like is a very important part of winning, at least as important as the technology and in my opinion, more important than the technology. So what were your major findings um, from the developer report? What kind of standouts were um, Yeah. Were found? Yeah, I, you know, I think at the highest level, uh, one was that developer activity is flat to slightly up, actually, even though prices are down 70 or 80% at the time that we're doing the report, which is remarkable um, that developers keep coming. Um, you know, uh, and you can go to developerreport.com as well. And we have, um, you know, all the data is available there. So anybody can go look at it. Um, you know, two is that you know, I think increasingly it's looking like the Ethereum ecosystem and EVM. There's like a real network effect here. Um, and, and that's like something that's, yeah, there you go. Um, 
And uh, some of the, some of those numbers at the end, by the way, like it looks like it's falling off and we'll see what happens. There's, there's usually like an annual holiday effect. So right around because the numbers, I think, cut off right at the holidays. And so yeah. often like people disappear for for end of year holidays and New Year and then they, they tend to come back. So we'll see how, how aggressively they come back. Um, but if you look at that one on the left, the growth, yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is this is remarkable. Right. And, and like what we saw in the last um, cycle was uh, as prices go up more and more developers come into the ecosystem. And in part, it's because, you know, they're looking at it and they're like, oh, something real is happening. And maybe they've been tracking it for a while. Um, and so more and more engineers start to come in. And then as prices, prices flatline or start to go down, I think a lot of the engineers that come into the space basically look at it and say, um, well, you know, I just got here. Do you really want to just leave and go back to your old job after three months? Like, you, like unwinding a trade, you can unwind a trade in minutes or, or hours, right? Unwinding a career decision that's a really heavy decision. And then it's going to have downstream consequences because you're going to look like an opportunist because you came into a company for three or six months and then that looks terrible on your resume. Like, do you want to go admit that you were wrong to your old company and, and be like, oh, I was hyping up crypto and now I'm back three months later. And so people kind of stick it out for a year and then they get a year into it because you're like, you don't want to leave a job in under a year. Then you get a year into it and you're having a great time and crypto is a lot of fun um, and you make friends and you go to the conference and you're like, oh, this is a blast and I get to write code and ship it all the time. Um, and then by then, like the market is kind of maybe bottomed out and you don't feel as terrible anymore. And then it starts to come back a little bit. So it, it may not be at like all time highs, but like, you know, go back to the last cycle, you know, you're kind of bouncing around six and went to three and it felt terrible. And then it kind of came back and then started to go up. Right. And there was that sort of like run from three to 14 K. And so you're like, oh, maybe this isn't so bad because all the numbers are way up actually from the bottom. So you feel pretty good, even though they're not at all time highs. So you then kind of stick around and then enough people stick around and don't churn out through the entire bear market that you just kind of tread, you know, tread water and kind of go sideways a little bit. Um, and then with the next leg up, you just get this like massive infusion of developers as prices go up again. So I would not be surprised if we look at this in three years, if this kind of like trends slightly down a little bit or kind of goes sideways for a little bit, you know, maybe you go down 10% or 20% on developers, even though prices go down 70 or 80%. And then with the next up cycle, it's just going to run again. And it's just going to go vertical again because there's so many developers now that are looking at this. I mean, think about, you know, between Google and Apple and Facebook and Amazon and like all these companies that are doing layoffs. Actually, Apple has not done layoffs yet, but all these others have the tens of thousands of developers that have now been laid off and people have been laid off. And now the like tens of thousands of people inside those companies that are thinking about what their, what their job is going to be in a year for two years. And they're like, man, do I really, you know, our team used to be 18 people and we're now down to five people. Now I have to do the job of three engineers. And like, this is a grind and it's not that fun a job in the first place. And now there's all this like pent up developer energy that as soon as prices come back, I think a bunch of people will say, you know what? Like crypto looks a lot more fun. Like it's a much more early what industry. Do you think I they're going to and... develop? Like, let's say you get laid um, at Google or something, or or, yeah. or you just find the work overbearing after the layoffs. What ecosystem do you think these guys are flowing into? You talked <coughs> about Aptos and yeah. Sui, or maybe they go more on the Ethereum side. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's we we have um, somewhere in the deck we have like the fastest growing ecosystems. Ethereum, just on a numbers basis, continues to to attract the most people, and I think um, for a whole host of reasons, you know, like increasingly there's just good developer tooling there. And so a lot of the stuff around the Ethereum ecosystem um, is really impressive. But we have, you know, some of the other smaller ecosystems, um, Cosmos, Solana, Near, um, are growing very, very quickly. Um, and, and the move ecosystems like Aptos also growing very, very quickly. So I think there are a couple of different motivations. I think for some people, there's um, sort of a like, what is the right architecture? So you look at something like Cosmos as sort of this like app chain model. 
Yeah. Um, Sui is a little bit of an outlier because they're starting with zero, but you look at the top yeah. and you're like, oh, you know, Sui and Aptos are, are like really drawing in developers. Um, uh, and, uh, and so in that case, it's like people look at something like Move and they're like, oh, this is actually the right programming language. Like if I'm going to write code, I'm going to start anew on this kind of stuff. This is the right way to do it. This is the right like mental model for doing it. Um, you know, if you look at something like Cosmos, it might be that you really believe in the app chain world. Uh, if you look at, you know, Solana, maybe you're already a Rust developer or you, or you really understand like the financial applications of this stuff. You're coming out of, out of Wall Street or used to work at like an H HFT firm or something. And so that appeals to you. So, um, you know, I think the motivations are different depending on the kinds of developers and, and where you are in the world and what your connectivity to these, these projects might be. And what this really speaks to, I think, is I don't think, you know, our belief is that there's not going to be one chain that wins. It's some sort of likely some sort of power law. And so you're going to have multiple ecosystems that coexist, at least for some time. And so that's really nice because that means it's not zero sum, right? Like Ethereum can win and Cosmos ecosystem can win and Sui and Aptos can win and Nier can win and Solana can win. And, and, and the markets are large enough that they'll find their own niche, you know? And so like the, the people who want to write financial code in a particular way will, will go in one place and maybe because you can write JavaScript code for Nier, like a bunch of web devs and application developers will go there. Um, and you know the the DeFi NFT people maybe they stick around in in uh, Ethereum land. So you know I, we think all of these things will coexist, um, and they'll probably carve out some specializations around the community and their belief systems and and how they work. And then they'll kind of coexist for a while, and then there'll be some some power law, um, which you see in a lot of markets. Like if you look at even pure network effect businesses like a social network, like obviously Facebook is huge, um, and YouTube is huge, but so is TikTok. So is LinkedIn. So yeah. is Twitter. So is Telegram. So is Kakao Talk in you know the uh, China Korea uh, sort of corridor. So you know between regional network effects, language network effects, cultural network effects, um, you know certain types of communities having certain social norms. You know like what you do on LinkedIn. If you do that on Instagram, super cringe, right? You just would never do that. So, and and yeah. so like all these things can coexist. So I think the same thing will happen in these ecosystems. Is you'll get interoperability. They'll all coexist, and yeah. you'll likely have then be much, much bigger than anybody thought. I mean, if you went back 15 years and you're like, hey, Facebook's going to be worth a couple hundred billion and LinkedIn is going to be worth like 50 to 100 billion and Twitter is going to be worth 50 billion, people would have laughed at you, right? You've been like, there's no way. These are like maybe $500 million companies, maybe billion dollar companies. There's no way they're going to be hundred X bigger. Um, but that's, that's, that's generally what happens with these markets. People way underestimate how big these markets are going to be. It's like the large, the, the, you know, 2 billion people is like an unfathomable, number for the human brain to get its head around <clears throat> and and then our ability to like understand and comprehend what that means when it comes to like how big these markets and ecosystems can be we just we just have really bad intuitions about it um and so anyway all that to say i think uh, like a bunch of these ecosystems will coexist and interoperate and it'll be great for everybody um and actually that that i think you know the the most productive people i mean if you look at like um Ilya from Nier, Anatoly from Solana, Vitalik from Ethereum, like actually like the smartest people in these ecosystems all like compare notes. They want like distributed consensus to work better. They want programming languages to be more secure. They want the developer experiences to be better. And they're all like quite friendly with each other. I mean, like actually the, the way I originally met Anatoly at Solana was through Ilya. <laughs> like Ilya at Nier introduced oh, us to Solana, right? So like... No. You know, it's. I think the smart people in the space are all very non-zero sum because it's. It's just we have so much longer to go here over the next ten years, and these markets are going to be enormous. How do you think they are going to coexist? You you mentioned interoperability just then. Um, obviously, if you have a Nier, a Solana, an Ethereum, how do you think everything's going to be linked together? What's your kind of vision for how crypto operates? 
Yeah, I think, um, well, from, from an interop perspective, I think we're going to get two things. I think we'll get centralized bridges effectively. And you could look at things like Coinbase as, as kind of like a centralized bridge. You know, it's like I move money in, I can swap it around and I can like move it out. And there is trust in a centralized entity there. But I think that's okay. Like, I think for a lot of people, that's actually desirable <clears throat> because you kind of, you know, for a lot of people, you, you kind of want somebody to email if you forget your password. Or you want somebody to be able to like undo the transaction in their database. So I think there's real benefits to that for a lot of people. And then I think all the way on the other side of the spectrum, you'll get zero knowledge enabled bridges that are truly trustless. Um, and so like Dan Bonet and Don Song just like released a paper maybe three or six months ago, sort of like laying out the architecture for one of these things. And I think a lot of the bridge architectures right now are kind of like halfway in between. Like they're kind of trustless and they're kind of trustless, you know, there's still some trust assumptions baked in there. So they're not truly trustless. Um, and I think that's actually the worst of all possible worlds. Um, like halfway in between, because you feel like you're getting something that's decentralized, but you can still get yeah. rugged or you, you still get hacked. So like, I think that will go away. And I think you'll end up with something that looks, uh, you know, much more like a ZK truly trustless kind of a thing. Um, we still have some like improvements to make on, on the user experiences around that. Um, but I think you'll you'll sort of get like these two polar polar opposites, and those will effectively serve as bridges between all of these ecosystems. Are there any projects in that space you're looking at or, or investing in or have your eye on? Um, not looking at a ton in that space. Um, not because it's like technically very interesting. I think there's a lot of really interesting technology there. I think the thing that we're thinking through is like what is the right form of value capture? Like because because uh, ultimately we have to make a return as investors. Um, and we don't want to do it on like, Hey, like there's going to be a token, like hand wave, you know, like there's just a token one day and like, you know, cause that's like too speculative. Like the token needs to have a use case and, and, you know, we care a lot about it not being speculative, um, and having fundamental value in some way. Um, and that's the part where we've struggled with is like, what, how, how big is that? And how do you really capture value in a meaningful way? My current thinking is that some of these bridges may just be public goods. Like, it, it, you know, like actually they just need to, it's, it, it's like a literal bridge right? Like the San Francisco mm -hmm. Golden Gate Bridge. Like it just needs to exist as a public good. It needs to be financed by like taxes basically. Um, and, uh, and, but it's not like a great business. You know, it's like you, you, as a VC probably wouldn't invest in the Golden Gate Bridge. There may be some ways you squint at it in a crazy bull market and look at it, but like it's a public good. Um, and there might be some services that you build that are more centralized services on top of such a trustless bridge um, to like, you know, like if there's a seven day waiting period or something like, you know, then you need to have like some business that fronts the money and, and is a fintech business on top of that. But even that, it's like, how big a business can that be and how defensible it is? Is it? And is there a real network effect there? Yada, yada. You start getting down that path. And we just haven't been able to build enough conviction that those are going to be good standalone businesses. So we haven't really pulled the trigger there. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a luxury, I think, of the business model that we have is we... Um, we can say no to a lot of stuff. That's a great business. Um, as long as when we say yes, we're right. Um, yep. And so it's, it's, it, we, we get a lot of margin for error in the business by, by just saying no to a bunch of stuff. And maybe we're wrong. Maybe it turns out, you know, like we missed the Solana seed round. Um, and we just said no. And it was like totally, obviously in retrospect, a mistake, right? Um, so, you know, we, we, get, we have the luxury in our business of being very wrong and it doesn't really hurt the business. Like it's just when, when we say yes, we, we need to be pretty sure that we're right. So you said you kind of envision a future where there's all these different L1s and they're kind of, they, they're all linked together in some way. So in five years time, how do you view the split between the different ecosystems? Do you think Ethereum will be kind of the main player 
and you'll have Solana, um, <coughs> Nia, Aptos. Do you have any preference in terms of what L1 you think is really pioneering that space? Um, so short answer is no, no preference per se. Um, you know, I think, and, and it's going to be really hard to know which of these ultimately wins and is the biggest. And there are a lot of like non-technical factors at, at work here. Um, you know, it looks right now like Ethereum has a pretty sizable developer advantage and, and you sort of see that in a lot of ways. And I think developers building killer apps uh, and then those killer apps bringing in more users and then those users bringing in more developers. There, there's a real flywheel there. And, and yep. Ethereum does seem to be farthest along in having developed that. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, how many users do we really have on on applications right now? I mean, like Coinbase has 100 million users. Um, I don't know how many there are really in dApps, maybe tens of millions at most, if you look globally, you know, not a huge number. And, you know, people forget, if you go back to um, 2005, Facebook was started when MySpace had 80 million users, um, roughly speaking. Um, and so if the market size here is 2 billion like we're still pretty early in terms of you know, how many applications can be built here. Um, and so it's entirely possible that actually something that is very small today ends up being huge in five to 10 years in terms of number of people using applications built on that ecosystem. So, um, and, you know, could you have predicted in 2005 that it would be Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter? Like maybe, but there are a lot of others that, that failed along the way that looked very credible for a very long time. That's, by the way, I'm not saying any anything that's out there right now is going to fail. It's just like it's so early that somebody could come along with pretty killer network effects or you know huge distribution advantage in some form. Yeah. Um, like you know, imagine uh, here's here's like a thought experiment. I don't think this would ever happen, but <clears throat> you know, thought experiment. Like, what if Apple launched an L1 and baked it into the iPhone, right? Um, and like you know, it has really it has Apple Pay, it has Fiat Gateway built in. Um, it uses USDC. It has Apple Wallet support. There's like you know, uh, face scan with like you know this um, secure enclave on your device. So it's like pretty secure. Like, not saying they're going to do this, but like if they did that, would they be able to overcome Ethereum's network effects? I think they could. Like if they really wanted to, I think they could overcome Ethereum's network effects. Um, right. So that that's like a litmus test for like ha has it really hit escape velocity? Um, whereas like, could Apple launch something that competes against YouTube today? I think that'd be really tough. Or like, could Apple release something that would compete against TikTok or Facebook today as a social network? I think that'd be very tough. Like, I think the network effects are such that it would be very, very tough today for them to do that. So that's like a litmus test you might be able to use for if somebody has crazy distribution, could they launch something and compete with you? And if the answer is yes, then you haven't really hit escape velocity. I really like that analogy. I, I think the general social media analogy is actually quite good. Like, as you said, we had Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, but then also recently we've gotten some new ones um, like TikTok, for example, that have exploded. So if we liken that to L1s and consider that L1s are roughly valued at around $300 billion today, let's say in three years that valuation doubles to $600 billion, do you think the new capital will be allocated primarily towards the older ones like Solana and mm. AVAX or will the newer L1s like the TikTok be where most of the liquidity flows in. Yeah, I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, it could go either way. Um, but, you know, what you do tend to see in these markets, um, you know, which I, I think will probably happen in the L1s too, you, you tend to see this oscillation of um, sort of expansion and contraction. So, like, let's take social networks for a second, right? Like, there is an early attempt at these in the 90s. And so guys like um, Reid Hoffman, Peter Thiel, um, 
the Zynga founder, uh, Mark Pincus, like these guys were playing with social networks in the nineties. They were just too early. So that might be kind of like the master coin, you know, like pre Ethereum colored coin, like that era, there was like a bunch of experimentation and the ideas were right. Then there was like a, a boom that happened in the mid two thousands with like MySpace, Facebook, um, high five, Bebo, Orkut. Like there was this massive explosion. Right. And for a couple of years there, there was just expansion, expansion, expansion. And then starting in like seven, eight, nine, you started to get this like consolidation and all these networks kind of died. Um, and, and you got like one or two or three big winners. And then post iPhone as a new platform, you got like, you know, a billion users on mobile, you saw re-expansion and that's where you got like Instagram, WhatsApp, TikTok. You saw this like re-expansion because the market got big enough that it could start to support more niche players. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see L1s working the same way, which is like right now we're in this expansionary period. Where it's just a land grab for the mass market thing, like the thing that will support the most number of devs with the most number of applications. And out of that will come a small number of, of winners, like you know, three, four, five winners, let's say. Um, and then you'll probably see a market consolidation, like a bunch of things will just die off and those ecosystems will die off and you'll sort of see a, contract, a contraction. And then like five, six, seven years from now, if you if you do in fact have a billion or two billion users, somebody might look at that and say, you know what, like the ETH model or the Cosmos model or the Solana model or the Near model is ten or fifteen years old at this point. We need to reimagine it, and so then you'll get like a refragmentation, you know, seven or eight or nine years from now, where somebody will take another stab at it, and the market size will be large enough that actually you could have some quote unquote you know, niche L1 that only supports fifty million users because the market size is now two billion. But actually, fifty million users is a lot of users doing something, right? So. Yeah. That, that if I had to play out the next 10 years, I suspect that will happen. It's like, we're now at the, like the tail end of the expansionary period and now it's a land grab. And so the next five years will be about contraction. And on the other side of five years, we might get like a refragmentation as the market size gets large enough. So I guess now's a good time to ask you about <laughs> what your Ethereum thesis is. After the merge, we've had a um, reduction in issuance. It's become even at some points deflationary. Are you more bullish on Ethereum than ever? What's your outlook on Ethereum as a network? Yeah, um, I'm I'm very optimistic about Ethereum. I think what's happening is, you know, there's a lot of ways to look at it. So, you know, when, when you look at it from like a supply perspective, is it some sort of, you know, fixed supply commodity kind of a thing? Maybe you look at it as a payment network and, and, you know, you're paying, you're taking some cut from from like the gross merchandise volume that's flowing through the payment network. Um, a couple of different ways to look at it. I think the, the way I look at it, and I think what this could be, which is, you know, that's really my job as a VC is like, assuming a bunch of stuff goes right, what does this really become? Like you look at a little company in the year 2000 and it's two guys writing some information retrieval algorithms and you're like, wait, this is a search engine and this could actually be a huge business, right? Like that's that's yeah. kind of your job is you have to take a leap of imagination. So when I look at Ethereum, I think what we're actually working our way towards in the next 10 years, 20 years is actually a third space, like a digital country, basically that sits adjacent to the United States and to China. Because I think what's happening, like at, as like the world becomes balkanized, I think you have the United States sphere of influence and it's a US dollar denominated system. Um, it's a democratic system, it's a capitalist system. Uh, and you have a sort of Chinese sphere that's emerging. Um, and I think they're gonna push for it to be RMB denominated. Maybe it sits on top of the ECNY. You're seeing them push this with Belt and Road. Um, it's more authoritarian and top down, uh, which actually does have a lot of advantages and efficiencies as, you know, like, like, you know, that system is to their credit. I think the Chinese government has probably pulled more people out of poverty than any, you know, prior institution ever. Um, but it comes with a lot of, you know, personal freedom trade-offs. Um, it's sort of quasi-capitalistic, you know, there's, there's sort of, it's a, it's a much more controlled economy. Um, and those are two big poles. 
right? So now if you're clearly allied with one or the other, if, the, if you're the United Kingdom, you're going to ally with the United States just for historical reasons, for economic reasons. There's like a lot of reasons, right? Um, if you're India or Turkey or Brazil um, or maybe even Germany, what do you do? Well, you're like, well, I'm not sure I want to be in the Chinese system. Like India definitely doesn't want to be in the Chinese system. But I don't love the idea of being in a 100% US controlled system. Because like, what if I need to buy oil from Russia to keep my economy going? And the United States doesn't like that. Do they shut me off out of the world economy? And that doesn't feel so great. Like I can't hand my sovereignty over to the United States just because I don't want to be in the Chinese system. So I think there's actually market demand for a third system. And that third system is basically a US dollar denominated system because you don't want to empower the Chinese system, but you want it to exist such that the United States government can't just shut you off whenever they feel like it. Um, and so what is that? You need some degree of decentralization of power, but a de facto US dollar system. And that's basically what Ethereum is becoming. And so I think what you're going to end up if this thing really works is you end up with like a settlement space, which is a third space, which coexists alongside the US system and alongside the, alongside the Chinese system, which is an international decentralized settlement system that's basically US dollar denominated, but that the US government can't really shut you out of. And then they have some degree of influence and control, maybe like the euro dollar system. Um, <clears throat> and so they'll control some of the fiat on ramps and off ramps and, and the way that the money gets in and out of the system, maybe they have some degree of control over, but they're not going to be able to shut it down. Um, and I think there's a real market demand for that. So like, what is a digital country worth that China and Turkey and Brazil and Germany want to settle a bunch of trade in. And those businesses want to settle trade there. And people hold like huge amounts of USD deposits, which are somewhat US dollar fiat backed, but maybe they're not sitting in a US bank account. Maybe they're sitting in a European bank account. Like what is that system, right? What, and how do we describe that? And the best I have right now is some sort of like a, a digital country um, or maybe like a third space, like a, to use a mm. Starbucks phrase is like, I, and I think there's real market demand for that. And I think, I don't know how to put a price on that and nor should you know, anybody listen to me on that stuff. Um, but that seems like pretty transformative. If that exists as a system, um, th that seems pretty transformative to me. And that's, that's, I think the like upside is like if, if Ethereum continues on the path that it's on, I think that's actually what it becomes. Cause I think no, that's what the market wants. Like that's what, that's what the market is pulling yeah. out. The market basically wants a U.S. dollar system that the U.S. can't shut you out of. And, and so the market is sort of like pulling out of Ethereum in that way. What's interesting is what you just described is probably what a lot of Bitcoin maximalists would describe as the role that Bitcoin should play. So yeah. how do you kind of view Bitcoin fitting into this system? Yeah, I, I think the like lack of programmability makes that a non-starter for Bitcoin. And I, and, and I think actually like one of the cultural tenets of the Bitcoin ecosystem, which is, which is really good, is that it shouldn't change that much. Like you actually don't want a bunch of complexity in the L1 and you don't want people changing the monetary policy and you don't want people, you know, so the, the static nature of it, I think is a huge feature. Um, but I think that a static system can't do, it can't compete with Ethereum and, and sort of the innovation there. And that, that's like a fundamental trade-off. And again, I think these are, they, they will, they will coexist. Um, but I think the reality is like that, that race has been lost to Ethereum, like all of the interesting innovation and development like how do you compete compete against 10,000 developers writing code every month? Like if, you know, mm -hmm. Bitcoin just has a fraction of that. And at the end of the day, like you need killer apps. That's what brings in users. Um, you need a way to do US dollar. Like it turns out most of the world debt and commerce is denominated in USD. And so if you can't denominate stuff in USD, there's no, there's no way people are going to transition into it. So it's, it's, I, I think it's, 
unlikely to to be the case that Bitcoin is that base layer in that third space at this point. Like I think that ship has kind of sailed on Bitcoin, but that's okay. Like it, you know, it's in my opinion, it's it's still a, an important and necessary function that Bitcoin serves in the world as a perspective potential store of what value. What do you think that function will be? Store of value, digital yeah. gold. I think it's a, I think it's a pretty, yeah. I think it's it's basically like digital gold. It's millennial gold. Okay. Um and serves a similar purpose, I think. Um you know it's a, it's and and you can just and from a utility perspective you can enumerate that, right? It's like seizure resistant, um you know, it's highly transportable. You can have a password in your brain and and you know move across country border, highly liquid market, easy to subdivide, easy to transfer. Um, you know, it doesn't tarnish, you know, it doesn't go bad because it's math. It's a bunch of n- numerical strings and, you know, and, um, ones and zeros. So you, you actually look at the checklist of like what makes gold interesting um, or what makes any sort of potential commodity that's potential store value interesting. And like Bitcoin checks all those boxes. Um, so I think that's, that's a, that's a useful thing in the world. Um, and and yeah. I think a lot of people want that. Um, so I think they'll coexist, but I think that's a different thing than a highly programmable base layer on top of which you can build. Um, the entire financial system. And it just turns out it's a lot easier to do that on top of Ethereum than it is on top of Bitcoin. Yeah, I I think to reach that final vision that you described as Ethereum as that third economy, obviously it needs to scale and they have a plan to scale. They've outlined their roadmap. How do you think L2s fit into this? Do you think they actually help Ethereum um, scale long-term and and I guess take up a large percentage of that market share as well? Yeah, I think L2s are, are a very important part of it. Um, but I think they just reassert the Ethereum ecosystem, you know, because I think like what you'll ultimately want is um, the transactions to be settled on the base layer. And so like, I, I think it basically like the existence of the L2s is very necessary to get the throughput that you need. Um, but you're just turning the dial on that sort of security, seizure resistance and throughput um, sort of trade off. And you get a lot more throughput, but you trade off that that base layer security. Um, and so it's going to be really great for games. It'll be really great for NFTs. It'll be really great for smaller dollar transaction um, stuff. Um, but um, ultimately, you're going to want that stored out to the L- L1. And so once that's synced out, that that's where like the real value gets gets captured, in my opinion. Um, so I think it's it's broadly speaking, the L2s are going to reinforce the power of the L1s. Now, there's an interesting question here about will some of the L2s or even side chains, if you sort of broaden the aperture a little bit beyond L2s, let's say, you know, you call Polygon a side chain, is the ultimate end goal to, you know, to use sort of like a, um, like a, an arrow term, you know, are you, are you using like, is it like a gravity slingshot, right? Are you like using, are you coming into the orbit of Ethereum to dramatically accelerate your own growth? And then actually your plan is to become an L1, um, which I think, purely from an economic perspective is there's a there's a reason there's an incentive to do that because there's you know the, the size of the l1 market is so large so it's entirely possible that some of these l2s over time have an incentive to try to drift and become l1s um but i think there will be enough people who are sort of um eth maximalists or true believers in that vision that there will be some l2s that exist in support of making ethereum successful and that's all you really need you just need you know, one or two approaches that are successful. And then and then that will be enough to sort of continue the network effect around Ethereum. So what do you think of Polygon then? What do I think of Polygon? Mm. Um, it's, I think it's, it's actually, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about with the Cardano thing, which is even if you build the best tech in the world, um, it doesn't matter if nobody uses it. And I think what the Polygon team has done is I think probably Polygon and Flow are probably the two best ecosystems at partnerships. 
Um, they're just so impressive in terms of, you know, like Flo has NBA Top Shot and NFL and Cricket and UFC and some other really great brand partnerships. There's like a Dr. Seuss app there. It's like, they're so good at that. Uh, and it's so impressive how good the Polygon team is at pulling in Reddit and Starbucks and getting integrated with Facebook and Instagram. And um, you just look at that and you're like, man, they just like, they punch so far above their weight. Like nobody would have guessed when that was the Matic ICO in 2017 that, yeah, that those, that team of people would be the ones who pulled it off. And so like massive props to them for, for pulling that off. And then also credit to them, you know, back to this idea of, um, the best tech doesn't win. Um, I think what the Polygon team has been doing recently with like the ZK stuff around Hermes, very interesting, right? They're actually now taking this market momentum that they have and reinvesting it into technology and, and real tech development and pushing the ball forward. Um, you know, no comment. Yeah, I don't know in terms of value capture and you know, there's still some some big concerns around their like current proof of stake and how centralized it is and like validator set and who controls the validators and like, you know, this like two layer proof of stake thing that they have going on like there's a bunch of stuff there that you're like that's not great from an l1 perspective but i think there's no denying that they have been able to to use um they've been able to generate a lot of momentum and you could certainly see them saying actually we're now our own l1 with our own base token and it's not about snapshots back to ethereum that's like not what we do anymore at some point not saying they're going to do that not saying that they have any plans to do that i don't i don't know but it wouldn't be surprising if in five years they said you know what that's a bigger market and it just makes sense for us to do that like in the history of platforms and technologies that happens all the time. You know, it's like Google yeah, building, bu- building Chrome. They're like, Oh yeah. Like internet Explorer is a huge choke point. We can't have that choke point. Uh, it's too existential for us. Um, and so, you know, killer apps competing with the platform happens all the time and vice versa, right? Like uh, platforms compete with the killer apps. That's, that's sort of like the natural tension that exists with these economic incentives. As you mentioned, ZKVM, I think has been a good acquisition or Hermes for Polygon. How do you view the the ZK space? What do you think of ZK and optimistic rollups as a way to scale Ethereum? Yeah, so there, there are kind of two questions baked in there. So generally, you know, how do we think about zero knowledge um, and then optimistic rollups versus ZK? So um, maybe on the rollups first, um, there's there's a guy uh, on our team, Sanjay, um, who, who did the analysis and he posted this on Twitter. Um, and he sort of made the case that, you know, if you look at... Um, the optimistic rollups, um, you know, on a, on a per transaction basis, they're a little bit more expensive. Like what's really great about the ZK stuff is you have this like one fixed cost for the proof. Um, and so like the per transaction cost ends up being much lower. And so if you have like full throughput going like full throttle, like everything's maxed out on transactions and the fullness of time, ZK is better, but actually in the short term, given how much volume there is, optimistic rollups are actually just as good. There's like not that much of a gain to be had right now from the ZK side. And there's an argument kind of back to this idea of like the best tech doesn't necessarily win that if the optimistic folks build up the biggest ecosystem, they have the most number of developers, the most liquidity, USDC rolls in there, like the most users that, you know, the, if you look at how optimism is built, for example, if I remember correctly, uh, it's been a while since I, I looked at it. But if I remember correctly, like the way they built it, you could actually swap out the optimistic uh, rollup um, for essentially um, like ZK fraud proofs. And so like on the back end, you could just swap it out with ZK um, and do rollups that like ZK out to the L1 and get a lot of the same benefits. Um, but it, but their approach is like, let's get it out the door. Let's build the ecosystem. Let's build this stuff in a modular enough way that we could swap out for better tech later if we want to, which I think is a great learning from Ethereum. Like that's exactly what Ethereum did. 
And it's about winning market share and, and getting the ecosystem going and learning, right? If you, if you have developers and you have real users, you'll actually learn what people want. And so you'll get to the right solution much more quickly. Um, and so, you know, there's an argument here that actually ZK would be the winning tech, but actually the winner may not be what was originally a ZK rollup. Like the winner might actually be something that was an optimistic rollup that got all the market share and then swapped out for ZK on the back end. More broadly speaking, optimism, one of those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about of like the winner might be zero knowledge tech, but the, the winning L2 might not have started with zero knowledge tech. Um, you know, in, in terms of zero knowledge proofs and, and that as a technology umbrella in general, I think it's, it's fantastic. I think it's going to be transformative far beyond crypto and Web3 um, just as like, a, as like an enabling piece of technology. It's just so cool. So, you know, we, we've been investing in those sorts of technologies and technologists for, for quite some time. Like, um, you know, we were, we were involved with Zcash very early. And I think the stuff that Zuko and Nathan and, and that whole community have done is phenomenal. We were investors in Mina back in 2017, 2018, which says like, uh, recursive snarks. Um, you know, we're investors in Espresso, which is building, um, scalability solution on top of ETH, um, with configurable privacy. This is, um. Ben Fish, who's now a professor at Yale, and Benedict Buns, who did um, Bulletproofs for Monero, and Jill Carlson and Charles Liu. Um, we're investors in Ironfish, which is a, a new L1, a proof of work L1 that uses zero knowledge proofs um, to um, to create uh, privacy at, at sort of the base layer, um, because Elena, I think, correctly believes that you you need L1 base layer privacy, um, otherwise, like bolting it on is not not sufficient. Um, so you know we've been um, we've been investing in this in in sort of privacy tech and zero knowledge stuff for a long time because we think it's really good for the world. And I think one of the most awesome things about this whole ecosystem is that it's really accelerated the state of the art in terms of productionizing the technology. Like you know a lot of this math has been around for 30, 40 years, you know since the eighties, um, <clears throat> but it's really only in the last five years that it became productionized and got a thousand x better and a thousand x faster. And it's because we created a profit motive around it. And so now if you're one of these researchers, you can actually, you know, like look at the, the Starkware guys. Um, you know, it's just so impressive what they've built over the last few years. Um, and, and, you know, would that have been able to have been financed 15 years ago? Like there just was no way people could give them money and expect that to turn into profit. And so it was very hard to finance these kinds of endeavors. Um, and so I think like, privacy. Valuation. Yeah, that's right. Uh, no. And so... Yeah, you know, I think you look at this stuff and you're like, man, it, it may it may turn out that um, that one of the really interesting side effects of of all the crypto stuff is that we get way better privacy technology, um, you know, across uh, across all technologies. Like this, this stuff will get baked in everywhere, um, and it's a, it's a really nice side effect of of the crypto ecosystem that we're creating really great privacy technology. You mentioned Mina, and I think recently Mina's had a run off the back of a lot of ZK hype uh, leading into the Starknet and the ZK Sync and the um, Polygon ZK EVM as well. So how do you view this this ZK narrative? Do you think it's hot air or do you think um, that some of these newer protocols can actually accrue a lot of users and that will kind of create its own little um, sector that can perform quite strongly <laughs> in the market? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, short answer is I don't know, but this kind of goes back to that idea of, um, you know, you'll get some sort of power law with, um, with these things. Um, and I think it's entirely possible. I mean, look at something like signal versus WhatsApp signal has something like 50 to hundred million people. And that community of people really, really cares about this particular implementation of messaging. Um, and it's a bunch of journalists and politicians and, and people who, you know, dissidents and, 
people in certain countries. Um, and so I think it's entirely possible that the applications of the ZK stuff, there's just some group of 50 to 100 million people that really, really, really care about it. And that might be businesses for all we know, right? So it could still, from a dollar perspective, be enormous. Um, but it's an interesting thought experiment of like, could a relatively small number of users who really care about a thing help you know, concentrate around one or two or three ecosystems and actually all use that ecosystem? And, and that might be sufficient. Um, and so, you know, Z, it's, it, maybe, maybe a different way to put it is like, it's actually possible that a lot of the ZK stuff never goes mainstream. Like it's never a thing that a billion or two billion people are inter interacting with directly on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe it's like on the back end somewhere, it's getting used somehow. Um, and they're like, the, the like really day-to-day -day use cases of ZK are either at the infrastructure layer or they're sort of in this like small community of 50 million people um, that really, really care about this stuff. Um, but that could still be, a, you know, that could still be fantastic, right? That could still be actually um, a ton of value that's created with a relatively small number of people. Do you think there's a, a, a decent way to get exposure to ZK um, specifically, or do you think it's more broadly going to have impact on? Yeah, it's that's a good question. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, you know, I, 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 our way of doing it, which, you know, like I said before, nobody should listen to VCs or their portfolio construction. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense for most people um, is, you know, we, we invest in companies. And so we invest in, you know, four people in an idea like espresso, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, Hey, we have awesome tech. We've got some cryptography breakthroughs. We have some ideas about how to commercialize it. And you're, you're, you're buying some equity into the thing. Um, so that, that's the best way I know how, um, you know, at some point I suspect there will be one or two or three publicly traded companies that are really experts at this stuff. And so at some point, just in the same way that like basically buying Amazon was like how you indexed e-commerce or like buying Google was like how you indexed online ads. At some point, there will probably be some like one or two ZK companies that are like public that probably the right way to index zero knowledge at some point is going to be to like buy into some publicly traded company that does that's like the world leader at this stuff. Um, but short of that, it's like a bunch of startups. And that's that's really like VC realm. That's like our sweet spot. Maybe if you're an airdrop hunter, then you can get your hands on some uh, ZK Sync tokens or some StockNet tokens. Yeah, yeah. If there's a snapshot there. Um, so now I want to go into a segment where I ask you about some current narratives that are performing well and, and just future narratives that we hear <clears throat> being talked about quite a lot. The sure. first one's actually AI because mm. ChatGPT, fastest app to hit a million users, that kind of set off this boom in, in AI crypto. How do you think the AI crypto narrative can actually develop is there a real technological advancement in crypto via via utilizing ai and machine learning or is it kind of just um a bit of a i guess a hot air narrative being driven by some yeah. speculation the the way i think about it is um it's probably it, it's actually a good example of the um people overestimate what's possible in two years and underestimate what's possible in 10 years kind of situation like, I think crypto plus AI is probably a little early right now. It's just like, it's not 100% obvious to me. Like, yeah, you can build some trading bots. Um, so there's like some applications of it, but like, you know, are you going to have AI that like is trained on chain using crypto tokens to get paid, you know, paying people for data, that kind of stuff? <clears throat> I'm a little skeptical. Feels like a little early for that. Um, 10 years from now, I think these worlds absolutely converge. Um you know, one of the killer, killer things here with crypto is that computers can own money. And so you can have an autonomous agent that has a wallet and has access to dollars 
and can interact with other autonomous agents and pay them to do stuff or receive payment for doing things. Um, or that like, you know, you can pay or, 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 you know, really where this gets wild is some AI that has a wallet can pay humans to do stuff. And so, you know, like I, I, I tend to think, you know, like the Boston Dynamics robots and stuff. I tend to think that um, that will also happen at some point, which is also kind of scary in some ways. But long before that becomes like a real threat, you know, like Terminator style, I think actually the ability for AI to pay humans in the real world to do stuff sort of negates the need for robots, right? Like we already, we already have like very well, like, you know, over a million years of evolution baked into like our fingers and our hands and our eyes and our mouths. And so like if an AI just pays a human a hundred thousand dollars to go do something in the real world, and then like, you don't need a robot, right? Like we already have the best, you know, interface to the real world, which is the human body. Um, and so I think that happens way sooner, right? So like seven to 10 years from now, it's not at all crazy for me to imagine that millions of people are getting paid by an AI to do stuff in the real world. Wow. Um, yeah. And so that will definitely happen, but I don't think it happens in like two years. I think that happens in like seven to 10 years. Are there any projects you guys have been looking at in the AI sector or is it, or do you think it's just too early to start positioning yeah. yourself there? Yeah. A little too early. Um, because I think it doesn't happen in like the next two to four years. Um, I think it's still a lot of it is at the research phase. The other you know observation here is that a lot of the times as an investor, you don't want to be in the first wave of the thing. You want to be in the second wave of the thing because the first wave of the thing is very skeuomorphic. So what do I mean by that? So if you go back to like um, iPhone apps, like the first version of it was like you'd see the app and it looked like a shrunk down version of what was on your laptop um, because we didn't really have like the UI paradigms for it yet. And we didn't really know how to create those interfaces. And so you had stuff like leather and paper and like literally the page would turn um, and it was just way too skeuomorphic. It was just like, oh, here's what we're used to. So let's copy paste it into the phone now. And it yeah. took like three or four years of iteration. You know, like um, I want to say Instagram was like 2010. Does that sound right? Something like that. Right. So it was like three or four years after the iPhone launched um, that, that that really sort of came out and, and worked. Um, or if you look at Uber, right, Uber took a couple of years to really figure out and work or lift. And, and it, it, it's sort of like, you know, the first versions of stuff on the phone was like, oh, I have a GPS. So now I can find myself on a map and I can get directions. And you're like, yeah, that's totally true. But that's just like a shrunk down version of what was on desktop. So it makes sense to us. Um, but really, the breakthrough stuff was taking that and turning it on its head. It was not that you could go somewhere. It was that other stuff could come to you. Right. It's like Instacart and and uber and lyft and like right you had to sort of turn the idea on its head and that takes three or four or five years of people getting their heads around how to use the technology so i think like the second wave of this stuff in three or four years is going to be the stuff that's not skeuomorphic um and that's going to be the really like surprising stuff and so i think that's the point at which you want to start as a vc start thinking about seed investments like two people in an idea because you have to like live with the technology for a little bit to understand the second order effects like somebody had to have lived with the iphone for two or three years to say like oh actually yeah, you can create a lot of photos here, but like the killer thing is to be able to create one beautiful photo a day or somebody had to live with it for three years to realize that it's not about you going somewhere. It's that like you, the car has a GPS now too. So the car can come to you, um, right? It just takes a while for that to happen. So I think that will happen over the next three to five years. And then, and then I think it'll be a lot more interesting for us at the early stage to start investing in those things. Interesting. We'll keep our eye on it because undoubtedly it is going to be the future in some sense, but yeah. Um, well, as you said, just because something's like the future doesn't necessarily mean it's it's a great investment in the initial stages. Yeah. I think, and another narrative as well that's um, started to kind of um, show itself in January 
2023, and I think this has been brewing for a while, is the LSD narrative, liquid staking around um, ETH Shanghai, obviously coming up, is going to allow redemptions yeah. off the beacon chain. What do you think the impact of the Shanghai upgrade will be on ETH staking and the LSD projects, like Lido, Rockapool, that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, I, I think we'll we'll well first we got to get there. Hopefully, it's roughly on time. Um, I think you know staking um, participation will likely go up. Um, you know, I, I've heard arguments in both directions about what it means for the the LSD, like in terms of adoption going up and going down. Um, and then concentration of ownership too, you know, like does Lido continue to have very significant market share? What are the downstream consequences of that? Or does it sort of fragment a little bit? Um, you know, I don't know the answer there. I, I would posit that I think the dark horse here that I don't hear a lot of people talking about is the centralized exchanges. So like, you know, Coinbase has CBETH, for example. Um, and I think, um, the, the exchanges and the, um, the custodians, sort of as a point of centralization to be able to do their own staking and not participate in LSDs or, or to have their own liquid staking derivatives is like a really interesting dark horse in terms of creating market fragmentation and might actually be well received by a lot of people. Um, and so that's actually the sort of thing I'm looking for is like, what, what do like Binance and Coinbase end up doing in this? Because I think that will actually have a really big impact on the market and the, and the structure of the market. Um, and so getting some visibility into like how they're going to play it, I think will actually will be an important um, input into like kind of how the market shakes out here. I, I had a chat to Haseeb and obviously, you know, we're a, we're a friend of Haseeb on the channel. You're a friend of Haseeb. He's yeah. obviously a big fan of Lido. Dragonfly yeah. invested pretty heavily into Lido. Do you have any yeah. opinion on, on Lido as a protocol? Well, I mean, it's clearly the market leader. I, I think it's, you know, if mm. it's, um, I think, uh, you know, Haseeb can speak to their sort of investment thesis, but if I, if I understand it, um, we're, we're not investors in Lido. Um, uh, at least at the time of this recording, um, you know, I think our our sort of understanding of it is like, yeah, it's going to be a huge market. The market leader will continue to accrue a larger and larger percentage of it. So it's like it's a pretty straightforward investment thesis, I think. Um, and it makes sense. I mean, I don't think it's crazy at all. He's a smart guy. So, okay. you know, it's, it's a pretty reasonable investment thesis. Yeah, but I find it interesting that you mentioned potentially like Coinbase and Binance um, being like players in this space. Do you yeah. think after what happened to FTX, maybe there's less of a trust with staking in these centralized exchanges or do you think people can overcome that uh kind of over time yeah i mean i think one of the lessons here still is um you know like the um like convenience trumps security right i mean that i think that's one of the lessons of technology and so if the thing is significantly more convenient um, but the trade-off is some, like it's, it's a short-term, long-term trade-off. Like humans are generally really bad at long-term trade-offs. And a lot of the times in products, what you're doing is you're receiving some benefit in the short term in exchange for losing something in the long term. So think about like Facebook and surveillance capitalism. Like you're getting a lot of great benefits in the near term in exchange for you giving up a bunch of data, which then gets monetized over the long term. Right. Um, and so I think similarly with, with exchanges, um, you get a lot of convenience, especially in the short term, um, but you lose that sort of resilience. You lose the ability to just walk away with your assets or you lose the ability to, you know, not get shut down or censored or whatever. Um, and I think for a lot of people, that's an easy trade-off. Like that's, that's actually how they prefer, like where they prefer to be. I think also for a lot of people, it makes sense, right? Like if you're, if you're like a typical investment firm, 
do you really want to have a bunch of engineers managing some NPC and like trying to figure out how to like manage your assets and stake them and move them around? Or do you just want to be like, you know what? I'm just going to call Coinbase custody. They're on it. Like I trust them. If they screw it up, I'm going to take them to court. They have insurance. Like for a lot of people, it actually makes a lot of sense. Like for a lot of businesses, that makes a lot of sense. Um, like they don't want to deal with with the complexity of managing, you know, their their LDO position and like where do you, where is it sitting and who signs off on it and yada yada. Just like put it in Coinbase and like they'll take care of it and I don't have to think about it. I mean, in some sense, like that's the entire financial services industry, right? They're just like, give me your money. You don't have to think about it. Like I'll take care of it and I'll take some cut in the middle. Um, so it's it's sort of like a tried and true trillion dollar model, you know. So, um, so yeah, it's you know for for a lot of early adopters, especially in crypto, it's like you don't you don't love it, but I think from a market perspective, there's a lot of people in the world that that have a preference for essentially that. And so I wouldn't be surprised. For a, for a retail perspective, do you believe in self custody, or do you think people would just be better off keeping the funds on exchanges? <clears throat> um, I think. I would hope that we can get to a point where people can effectively self-custody de facto. And it's something that's been talked about for a long time, but I think we, I don't think we've quite cracked the user experience yet. Um, which is, you know, ideally what you would want is, is like the, you don't hand your keys over to anybody. You have some sort of an architecture, which I think the L2 is increasingly enable, which is like really, really fast throughput. And so you get sort of, it looks like an order book on a centralized system, but it's, you know, actually a decentralized order matching system. Um, whether it's like what Slingshot is doing on Arbitrum or what DYDX is trying to do as an app chain in the Cosmos ecosystem using Tendermint and their own validator set. Um, There are a lot of different sort of like technological approaches to it, but I think you can kind of approximate a non-custodial, but still like high quality centralized feeling kind of experience. I think it's like technically possible to do that now. Um, But like the user experience around key management is still so terrible, uh, especially when you're Mm -hmm. talking about like institutional grade that uh, I think that's that's the bottle. Yeah, that's a bottleneck. And so people will just fall back to like centralized key management, which, you know, has a lot of convenience elements to it. And so I think that's that's probably where we'll stay for a while until we get some kind of really great user experience breakthrough. Once we get a great user experience breakthrough, um, I think it may be possible to do a much more self-custodian kind of system that's actually just as secure and you can have key, you know, social key recovery and, and pe- things that you know, people have talked about for a long time. But I, I just don't think the user experience is quite there yet. And then the question is going to be, by the time we figure out that user experience, uh, is it too late? Like, does it turn out that all the private keys have ended up in centralized places? And so, like, at that point, it's just like, eh, why am I going to get my money out? Um, and, uh, and so it's sort of like a race against the clock. Is like, can the user experience get good enough before everybody just defects, de facto sort of like gives the, cut, the, gives the keys over to, to third-party custodians? It's interesting because obviously on social media and as like advocates of decentralization, everyone wants self custody. But even yeah. personally, I've found like yeah. I'm trying to like store my own seed phrase, and it's it's absolute nightmare because there's like yeah. ten different solutions. Like you can yeah. give it out to multiple people, you can hide them somewhere, you can p- yeah. put it in a bank deposit box, you can keep it on a central. Like there's so many options, and it's not really clear what one is the yeah. best. And there's trade offs to every one. So I think like well, potentially a solution to that, like whether that's a wallet or some sort of decentralized protocol that fixes it someday, that there could be a big winner. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm on the lookout for solutions in that niche. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Um, and, and on that point as well, clearly that's a problem and, and a pain point in crypto. What other problems have you started realizing? Because Haseeb said um, last interview that every every cycle there's kind of new problems that are identified and often the solutions to those problems, they're the big winners in the next cycle. Yeah. So yeah. what problems last cycle did you realize that exist and, and you think 
the solutions to those could be could be top performers. Yeah, less. I, I think about it less from like a top performers perspective because I think um, it kind of goes back to this idea of like in general, the big winners tend to be so big that you don't want to be hopping around a lot. So like the vast majority of people. So, okay. If you go back to like 2010, let's say, uh, or even 2005, um, you could have tried to beat Sequoia at the venture game and try to catch WhatsApp and Stripe and all this stuff. But like, that's a really hard game. Even the people who do it professionally as venture investors generally underperform the stock market. Really what you should have done was said, wow, Google is going to be huge. Facebook is going to be huge. I should probably just buy some Fang and sit on it. Like if you just bought Fang and sat on it for 15 years, you crushed. Um, and you didn't have to yeah. think about it, right? And so the way I think about it is less like what's the new narrative or what's, you know, what's happening in two years. I tend to think of it as like 10 years from now, what is, what's going to be so enormous that that you should just like buy and hold for 10 years. Um, it's kind of like a midwit kind of situation, right? It's just like, don't overthink it. If you, if you're overthinking it, you're just, you're in the, you're in like the, you're just too mid, just do the like really brain dead, stupid thing and probably you'll crush it. Um, and so to me, the real question is like, what are the things that are going to be so huge, um, that, that you should just like ride that just like buying like 10 years ago, you should have just bought a bunch of fang and sat on it. Um, and, uh, and so that's kind of how I think about it. And then I think about what are the blockers to making that thing happen? Because that's where, you know, as participants in the ecosystem, we can have an impact, right? So for example, um, we have, uh, uh, we have a full-time design partner on staff at electric. She used to be senior director of, uh, design at Facebook and she worked at YouTube and she was one of the original designers of Google maps. Um, and it's because I think that you know, let's take this sort of idea of Ethereum being being this like third place, like a third digital country where people can do settlement. Well, like if we don't have great user experiences, that's just never going to happen. Like if people can't actually use this stuff and it's too hard and too technical and people are losing their keys because like you have to read some really weird like signature output, you know, on a, on a wallet, like mm. that's just never going to go mainstream, right? And so what we need to do is have companies start thinking about how to have really great user experience and user research and design practices from day zero so that by the time that they're scaling these applications, um, the, the user experiences are really good, right? So the thing that we can do if we think that Ethereum is going to be really huge in the long term um, or the L1s are still very early days is we got to get really great user experiences at the app layer. So let's start building the capacity in these in these ecosystems to do really great user experience and design and, um, and make sure that the experiences are really good and let's start building that muscle. So anyway, I think about it slightly differently. I think about it less about like, what's the narrative for the next cycle. I think about it as like, what's, what's going to be so much bigger in five or 10 years and undeniably huge. And then just like sit on that wave and just ride that wave for 10 years. So like, rather than trying to ride a new wave every two years, like try to ride the right wave for 10 years. So clearly we've talked about Ethereum being maybe in that category and some of the L2s. Are there any other things that you think are going to be undeniably huge? Yeah, I, I think NFTs are pretty slept on, actually. Like if you go outside the NFT, you know, and, and outside of crypto Twitter, most people, I think, really misunderstand NFTs. And today when we say NFTs, you know, there's sort of the infrastructure of NFTs and like as a digital property, right? But also the use cases of collectibles and digital art. Um and I think people don't really understand, like it takes a while for people to get their heads around collectibles and digital art. 
Um, but actually, I think once you start explaining it to people through use cases, people are like, oh, that's huge. So, <clears throat> you know, I think I just look at it through the lens of, um, you know, at the end of the day, we're all, we're all primates and we need to socially signal to each other. And there are ways that we do that in the physical world. So literally LVMH, like the richest man in the world runs LVMH. Um, and like, what is that company? That company is a social fitness signaling company. Like luxury brands are all about like, I have extra income and what I'm signaling to you is that I'm, I have a certain degree of fitness. Um, and, you know, it reminds me of what, like, if you go back to the early internet, there were these things which were like, here's how much time people spend on the internet. Here's how much money is on the internet. It was like tiny compared to the amount of time. And here's how much time people spend on newspapers. And here's how much dollars are spent on newspapers. It was like totally disproportionate. And you just looked at that and you're like, that's got to fix itself. Like all the ad dollars have to go from newspapers to the internet. That's just going to happen. I look at social signaling that way, just like all of the like luxury dollars and social signal dollars are offline. But if like you're spending 12 hours a day on the internet, like why are you going to buy thousand dollar shoes? Literally nobody can see your feet. That makes no sense, right? What you should do is spend a thousand dollars on something that somebody can see on, on the screen. And when you start doing the math, in my opinion, the example I always use is like, you could buy a $200,000, you know, Patek grand complications and it'll be on your watch and like, you know, it'll be on your wrist. How many people are going to see that, you know, in, in the lifetime of you wearing that watch? I would say maybe 10,000 people will see it and recognize it. Um, and so you're paying effectively $20 an impression. If you think of it sort of like from an advertising mm -hmm. perspective, you're like, that's $20 an impression. Or you could buy a board ape for 200,000 or a crypto punk for 200,000. So if I buy a punk for $200,000 and a million people see it, that's 20 cents an impression, which is literally 100x better. So like I have a thing that allows me to achieve social fitness at 100x better efficiency than the analog version. So like, why wouldn't I do that? That's actually, to me, is actually rational. Um, now it's a different group of people from whom you're acquiring that, you know, social capital. But um, to me, it's like actually serving the same underlying human human need. So it's, to me, it's not a surprise that, for example, companies like Tiffany or um, Porsche, like these people that understand social signaling are the ones who are getting their heads around NFTs first um, and everybody else isn't. Like, it's not a surprise to me that that's what's happening. Um, and so that, that, that whole ecosystem, I think, is like totally slept on because I think most rational people, it's like a different universe of people, like the art people and the fashion people and the luxury people is like, actually really a different group of people than the technology people and the finance people. Like there's some overlap there, but it's actually like the Venn diagram is relatively small overlap. Um, and so that, that's like, you know, that's an example of like, that's not a narrative to me. That's just like over the next 10 to 20 years, given that most people spend most of their hours online now, you just have just like the way, you know, like the newspaper to internet advertising dollar shift happened to me, the like, physical luxury goods to like digital social luxury goods like that's just going to happen and it's just like the ad dollars uh shift um and so that's like not a narrative that's just like you look at that and you're like yep yeah. in 10 years those graphs look totally different than they do today i agree with you i think that's a fantastic answer as well um i really enjoyed that and obviously you're a fan of nfts but i i kind of struggle personally um to yeah. kind of get exposure to nfts because <clears throat> well First mm. off, I've had some terrible experiences actually buying projects because, yeah. as we know, I mean, if you're investing in an individual project, as Kobe yeah. said, sometimes it's well, what uh, what did he say? Tokens, um, kind of with pictures with JPEGs attached. Yeah. So how can you kind of position yourself in in to capture upside of NFTs? Do you look at the marketplaces? Yeah. Do you look at some of the <coughs> trading solutions? Like, how do you actually expose yourself to what we yeah. think is going to be a big um, a big thing? 
Yeah, it's it's a you know good question, and you know again not financial advice for anybody. It, I think it for us the approach we've taken is kind of similar to a lot of things, which is, um, what are the points in the ecosystem that are points of aggregation? Um, so you know we're investors in Magic Eden, for example. We were in the Series A, we led the Series B, and you look at something like Magic Eden, um, and you're like, yeah, you kind of don't have to pick the winner. You don't have to know which NFT collection is going to be the winner. Um, no matter what the winner is, if you assume that there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be buying and selling these things, then there's going to have to be a place for people to do the buying and the selling. Uh, and, and so that marketplace is going to need to exist. And that's probably a great you know, place to get broad exposure to that market. So you know, we're able to invest in the early stages at, at those kinds of businesses. Um, you know, no comment on kind of how you might do that sort of as an individual person on retail. But, um, you know, I think that that's kind of how I think about it is like, mm. you kind of don't want to have to pick the winner. You kind of want to pick the thing that's like, it's kind of like, um, you know, we're talking about with Google and online ads, like it, it kind of didn't matter what use cases came online first. Maybe it was travel, maybe it was stocks, maybe it was um, magazines, maybe it was, um, you know, prescription drugs, right? Um, maybe it was lawsuits. Like there were all sorts of use cases that could have come online. Instead of trying to pick that off, just pick the thing that's like, well, no matter what happens, like there's going to be this tailwind and like there's one or two or three companies that will capture the upside. Um, you know, just like buy that and you'll get most of the upside. That's kind of how we think about it. Um, so, you know, that's, that's why we don't really buy individual, like in, inside the fund. <clears throat> like personally, I have some NFTs, but because um, we have to play around with this stuff too. But um, the way we think about it is like, try don't try to pick the winner. Try to pick the thing that you don't have to pick the winner. That's going to benefit no matter what. What L1s do you think are going to be the the primary NFT chains? Obviously, we saw Solana explode in that niche. We've seen Flow do quite well. Ethereum, of course, is going to be a player. Maybe even Polygon getting into that space yeah. now. What, what chain do you think is like really suited to NFTs? Um, well, I don't think there's going to be one. I think it's going to be different, right? Like, and, and you, if you look at kind of how it's playing out right now, um, you know, Ethereum is sort of winning with sort of, in some sense, luxury goods. Um, Solana is a close second there, I think, um, if you look at the transaction volume. Um, you know, Polygon, I think, likely has an early edge on um, these sort of um, uh, like end user social applications like a Reddit, you know, which is essentially issuing NFTs on, on Polygon. Um, or games, um, you know, Polygon has a really robust games ecosystem and that games NFT ecosystem might be a totally different ecosystem than the luxury goods NFT ecosystem um, as just another use case. So I suspect it may fragment by use case um, and it may fragment by um, which developers and which applications exist on which ecosystem. So like if Polygon has a bunch of games developers that choose to use Polygon for any number of reasons, then it's, it's more likely that like games NFTs work on Polygon. Um, yeah. So I, I suspect it's not going to be like one chain that wins all of NFTs. It's probably more likely use case by use case and ecosystem by ecosystem. Um, and again, I think you end up with probably multiple winners across um, various chains because I think the use cases lend themselves better or worse to certain kinds of L1s. Okay. So I've got one more segment, but we've been talking for a while. It's been a great conversation, by the way. I've really enjoyed, um, really enjoyed this. I'm going to have to watch this back again and rewind it and, I don't know, truly digest some of the stuff you're saying because I think every answer could almost have another hour worth of, you know, thought process going into it. So I'll definitely watch it back. But um, a segment that I've been playing with the guests is 
uh, I name eight projects and then I kind of get the guests to give me one word in exchange to kind of describe that project. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I might say, I don't know, Bitcoin Cash. I think um, Geordie said failure, for example. Mm. So um, I'll just run through a few projects and, and, and get your kind of one word to describe each of them. You can take your time with it as well. Uh, the first one is Bitcoin. Um, I was, I was going to say uh, the original. Well, it is difficult sometimes to keep it to one word, but original is good. <laughs> um, that, like, that's a super hard one. Yeah. Gold, some people would say, but technically mm-hmm. it's not digital gold. Um, Solana. You say Solana? Yeah. Um, I would say um, opinionated. Opinionated. XRP? Oh, um, I, it's funny. My The word that comes to mind for me is army. It's just like from spending too much time on Twitter. <laughs> uh, no, I would 100% agree. And it's not just Twitter. You'll notice TikTok, actually, the majority of crypto posts are XRP and Cardano on, on those like short really? formats. Yeah, oh, like yeah. I've been starting a TikTok account and, and trying to learn a bit more about it is a social media medium because it's huge. Yeah, and yeah. I've noticed all That's the cool top accounts with a million plus followers are XRP and ADA <clears> accounts <throat> because those have the biggest communities. So then creators are then incentivized to push out that content versus talking about maybe things that oh, um, they believe in more but that have a smaller sense. community. Yeah, so, it's, so it's super interesting. It is an army, I agree. Um, another one that had an army, it still has an army, but mm-hmm. definitely did last bull run is Phantom. Sorry, what was that one? Phantom, FTM. Oh, um, Andre. Andre, nice. He's back. Andre's back, everyone. Um, <laughs> Cardano. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I was, what I was actually thinking was like Charles. Um, that's kind of what I think of when I think of Cardano. You know, it's hard because it, it's is good as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of an analog for the, the word cult, but it's just like they have, they have a lot of true believers, which is impressive. I think cults, uh, I mean, it, cults a bit harsh, but it's good. Like I think it fits yeah. the bill, even yeah. though it's on the slightly harsh side, but I mean, even they might call themselves a cult. I yeah. mean, it's not a bad thing being dedicated to something. Yeah, it's, it has like a uh, negative connotation, but I think people get what I'm talking about. It's like they have they have a lot of true believers. Yeah. So three more. The first one is uh, BNB. Oh, um, what's uh, the right term there? Um, I I think maybe experiment or testnet. Interesting. Like and, and the reason, oh, what do people say? Some people say centralized. <laughs> oh, interesting. But, um, yeah, it's because kind of... I, I actually think it's like a pretty interesting uh, test bed for a lot of interesting ideas. Mm. And um, because Binance has um, the ability to just send so much traffic in that direction, um, you just see a lot of really interesting experiments happening. And so I almost think of it like a real, a real world test net uh, because it's real dollars involved for a lot of stuff that then plays out on Ethereum. Um, and so they're sort of like pioneering a lot of really interesting mechanics inside the BNB ecosystem that then later find their way to Ethereum. Okay. I've got a couple more. Uh, the penultimate one is Neo. You say Neo? Neo. 
N E A R. Oh, N E A R. Oh, yeah. um, uh, I basically Where's think developer. Yeah, developer. No, it's okay. Uh, I think developer um, because their their like perspective has always been to try to make the chain that's the easiest for developers to build on. Yeah, has always been their perspective. And then they've also got obviously um, you can build on JavaScript, correct? Yeah, that's right. On Neo. Do you think yeah, that's going to be a catalyst for the ecosystem having like access to such a big like development <clears throat> ecosystem through other languages? Um, short answer is I don't know. Longer answer is it's it's interesting that they're trying, you know. But I think the idea of like having really good SDKs, making it really easy to ship code, um, really like their ethos is very like if you just look at their marketing, if you look at kind of how what they talk about. It's like very builder, developer. That's kind of like the vibe. You don't really have, um, like it doesn't feel financial, if that makes sense. It's not like a bunch of HFT people in there. Um, and it's not like, um, it's not like the Art Basel crowd, right? It's not like the super high-end art people. It's just like when you go to the conference or you go, you know, um, you like talk to the people there. It's just, it has sort of like a, engineer, builder, developer. That's kind of like the vibe that you get from people in the ecosystem. Mm. And my last one is, and we'll end on a meme coin for meme's sake, Doge. <laughs> um, I think, <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, maybe ironic. Um, there's this great uh, quote from Elon Musk, which is something like, um, on the internet, the most ironic outcome is the most likely um yeah. and and so i think it'd be actually kind of hilarious if it turns out that a thing that was started as a parody ends up being hyper decentralized because everybody thinks it's hilarious to buy ten dollars worth of it and then all of a sudden a couple hundred million people own a little bit of it and you're like well that's not a security like nobody really controls it and it's kind of still working mm-hmm. And then that gets the flywheel going of people saying like, okay, well, maybe we should patch in all the changes that have happened and yada, yada. And then like maybe one day Elon just for just for kicks integrates it into like Tesla and Twitter. And all of a sudden there's like real payment volume happening on it. Like it's it's actually not crazy to imagine a world where something like just insane like that happens. Um, but it would very much be in keeping with this like Elon's law or Musk's law of like the most ironic outcome is is the most likely. The internet will just produce it yeah. for like, you know, for, for the hilarity of it. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting thing to think about that it's like it was a joke, but actually that's maybe the reason that it might work. You know what? And that's part of the reason why I actually hold some in my long-term portfolio and I get some people scrutinize me for that. But <clears throat> like I personally believe like having a tiny allocation, maybe one, two percent to meme coins, obviously not financial advice is not, I don't know, it's not a terrible idea because if it pays off, that can that can yeah. that can outperform. So I have a little yeah. bit in Doge, maybe tiny bit of Shib, Flocky, all that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's also funny, like it's rubbish, but could actually perform. Well, you know, it's interesting to think about too. Um, is like things that are like fun is a utility. You know, like having fun is a thing that humans want to do. Like laughing is, mm-hmm. you know, and is like bringing joy. Like these are things that are actually have utility to humans. And so, like, the idea of buying a little bit of some of these meme coins just because it's fun, like, that actually makes sense to me that a lot of people would want to do that. So I don't think it's that crazy. And then you sort of play that out, and you're like, well, a lot of people want to do that. So, like, is it so crazy that a lot of people are basically playing this, like, shared real money game all over the world? Um, As long as everybody sort of goes into it with the understanding that it's essentially you're playing a game. It's not, like, you know, real money. Um, 
then uh, then I think it's fine. But yeah, you know, as a result of the side effect of that. Well. Yeah, hundred percent. Like similar to NFTs, and I, I don't know. What do you think of like the board ape and the crypto punks, punk ecosystems? They're very different. Like a Doge. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think they're actually going down more of like a video game path. But you might argue that Doge is kind of like a video game, right? It's like a real money game that everybody's playing together. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think of these as just like video games. Like everybody's playing a yeah. shared game and everybody's like discovering the rules. It just so happens that like instead of it, instead of you like playing it on a console and like there's one surface, which is your TV in the world that's been created um, by the video game creator the game surface is the entire internet. So it can play out on your yep. phone. It can play out on Twitter. It can play out on discord. So you can play the game across the entire internet. So it's kind of like an overlay on the internet. It's like a, it's a game that you have to be playing everywhere on the internet at once. Yeah. That's actually a really good way to think of it. Um, and, and it's interesting. You said uh, Doge is kind of one big game, one big, almost social experiment, but yeah, also it's like, a social yeah. game. Yeah, it's super interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time. I mean, we discussed Good a lot. As I said, going to have to watch this back multiple times um, and and kind of dig a little deeper. And I suggest the audience does so as well. YouTube has the luxury of two speed now as well. Um, so you can you gotta pack, <laughs> in those, pack in those hours. Um, but no, I really appreciated your time and and yeah, discuss some super interesting topics. And I appreciate you, you coming on the show and hopefully we get to do this again one day. Yeah, man. It's good to see you. Thanks for the time. All right. Appreciate it. Yep. And if you're in the audience... Make sure you smash the like button and subscribe if you're not already. Um, Turn on notifications because I'll be doing this series every single week. And I will see you in the next video on Monday. Peace out, guys.